Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We know it's hard for people who feel their rights have been violated by police to sue the officers and win in court. Well, UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz wants you to understand just how hard it really is and why. Qualified immunity, in combination with other rules that the Supreme Court and states like California have erected, Schwartz says, make police accountability for abuses of power near impossible. We'll look at her two decades of research into how our legal system handles cases of police misconduct, told in her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz says qualified immunity has come to represent all that is wrong with police accountability. It's the Supreme Court-created doctrine that protects police officers against civil liability for excessive force or other misconduct unless there's a prior court case where an officer violated a person's rights in virtually the same way. And qualified immunity, Schwartz says, is just one of multiple barriers that make justice profoundly elusive for victims of police abuses through civil rights cases. A former civil rights attorney herself, Professor Joanna Schwartz, joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you. I think the easiest way to understand what you mean about qualified immunity that I was sharing there in the introduction is is to show how it works in practice, because it really is very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, and part of my goal in writing Shielded was to try to communicate uh, what these legal barriers are to a audience that doesn't read law review articles for fun on the weekends um, <laughs> through, through, you know, hopefully understandable language and also through stories. And, and the book is filled with stories of people who I think most, if not all readers will agree, uh, have had their lives unlawfully turned upside down by abuses by law enforcement. And and then that was just the first step in in the, the injustices that they suffered because then trying to get justice through the court system um, has been its own ordeal. Mm, yes. Could you tell the story of Jezel Matos in Hawaii? <laughs> in 
August of 2006, Giselle had her teenage daughter call the police because her husband was becoming violent with her as they argued. Can you talk about that first violation, as you say, what happened when the officers arrived? Yeah, the the officers uh, arrived at the home of Giselle Matos. Uh, When they did, she was inside, her husband Troy was outside, and the officers said they wanted to see Giselle, um, speak to Giselle, um, because they had received this call. And uh, Troy went inside to get Giselle. One of the officers followed him in, um, officer named Agarano. And then Troy and the officer started uh, arguing. Giselle came out and asked if the officer and her husband would calm down, go outside, She had sleeping children in the home. And instead, another officer came in as well. They decided at this point they wanted to arrest Troy. And Giselle was cornered between the officers. There was one officer in front of her, one at her right, and her back was up against her husband. As one of the officers went to grab Troy, he bumped up against Giselle. She raised her hands to keep the officer's body from smashing against her breasts. And then that officer stepped back, said, are you touching an officer? And then without warning, tased Giselle in her hand and in her breast. Hmm. She fell to the ground. She lost consciousness. When she came to, her four-year-old son was crouched in front of her, looking into her eyes, and her husband was in handcuffs. And so Giselle herself became arrested for harassment and obstructing government operations, and she was taken to the police station. Those charges were later dismissed, but Giselle wanted to know what her rights were. And she actually worked for the Maui uh, government. So she started calling around, trying to find out what the department's taser policies were um, at the recommendation of several people, she filed a complaint with the police department's internal affairs division, nothing came of it. And so she looked to find a lawyer willing to represent her in a court case, which which she did. She found uh, one of few lawyers at the time in the area who were, who were practicing and brought a lawsuit against the officer who had tased her in response to a domestic violence call to her home. The case wound its way through the courts Ultimately, the Court of Appeals found that her constitutional rights had been violated. Um, As they said in their decision, of course, sometimes officers have to make split-second decisions, but there's no reasonableness in the idea that they said tasing the innocent wife of a large, drunk, angry man when there's no threat that either spouse has a weapon is a way to defuse that kind of situation. In fact, They said the fact that the officer hadn't warned Jaisal before tasing her pushed this use of force far beyond the pale. And even with those clear findings by the court, what happened? Well, the Court of Appeals ruled that the officer was entitled to qualified immunity, which means the case against him uh, was going to be dismissed. And, And that was because even though 
the court said that this was a constitutional violation. They said that that constitutional right was not clearly established. And this decision really points to just how, uh, how closely related a prior court case has to be in order to clearly establish the law. The Court of Appeals said that the lawyer had to have found a Supreme Court case or an appellate court case holding that tasing a person under similar circumstances was unconstitutional. It wasn't enough to simply say tasing or using force against a potential domestic violence victim who was not a threat was unconstitutional. Instead, they had to find a prior case where an officer had used a taser under similar circumstances and, and even noted, the, the Court of Appeals even noted that there wasn't a prior decision that had addressed the use of a taser in dart mode, which is one of the ways in which tasers can be applied, suggesting that there had to not only be a prior court case holding the use of a taser unconstitutional in these circumstances, but the use of a taser in this particular mode unconstitutional. So Jaisal so Matos's constitutional claim against this officer was dismissed. Well, I guess how subjective is it for the judge to determine whether a prior case satisfactorily meets a, the high bar of clearly established law? It's a great question. And there is variation in the ways in which courts understand their obligation to grant officers qualified immunity uh, unless the law is clearly established. And the Supreme Court has issued a lot of decisions where they say the facts have to be particularized to the facts in the case, but there is variation among courts in how they review this standard and apply this standard. And, and actually, there has been research finding that uh, judges uh, on the Court of Appeals and at the trial level who are appointed by Republican presidents are more likely to grant officers qualified immunity than are judges appointed by Democratic presidents. And you can see it, it's, the, the, the data has been um, analyzed by a number of different scholars and it's been found so powerful that you know having three Republican appointees um, is makes it more likely to grant qualified immunity than a panel of three judges with two Republican appointees um, and and on <coughs> and on and on to three Democratic appointees being most likely to deny qualified immunity. This points to just how subjective the standard is and and again how unjust it is if your ability to recover after your constitutional rights have been violated is determined on the happenstance of the political affiliation of the judge who is assessing your case. Wow. If cases are so hard to bring, how big is the universe of existing cases that you could go back to to look for a prior decision in a very similar case? This is a great point. And you know, the, the research that I've found suggests that fewer than 1% of people who believe their rights have been violated ever file a lawsuit at all. So the, the universe of cases uh, is, is necessarily smaller um, for that reason. Um, and then people may not be able to find a lawyer 
They may not be able to uh, resolve a case in a way that includes a adjudication of the constitutional protections. And so uh, it, it can be very difficult to find these cases that might clearly establish the law. Well, listener Karen writes, the police officers in Hawaii have broad protections when sued for misconduct. The cities pay for their legal representation and any judgments. In the last decade, the city of Honolulu has paid more than $18 million to victims of police misconduct and brutality claims. Almost $5 million was paid just last year. In many instances, an officer's punishment is reversed or diminished through union grievance procedures. We're talking with Professor Joanna Schwartz of UCLA School of Law. Her new book is Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. The Supreme Court, together with state and local laws and policies, have created a, quote, phalanx of shields that have made police officers all but untouchable in civil rights lawsuits, according to Professor Schwartz. And that's left victims of assault, excessive force, illegal searches and other constitutional violations without recourse in civil courts. We're hearing about how shields like qualified immunity are playing out in California and what that's meant for victims of police violence. And of course, you, our listeners, can join the conversation. What questions do you have about qualified immunity? Do you think California should do more to end it? Have you ever tried to sue a police officer or other government official? What happened? Do you work in government or law enforcement and have a perspective on qualified immunity to share? You can share it by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or calling us 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Qualified immunity, in combination with other rules, makes the police, in the words of my guest Joanna Schwartz, UCLA professor, 
untouchable, both in California and nationwide. And we invite you, our listeners, to join us to share your questions about qualified immunity, whether or not you think we should do more to end qualified immunity, as some states have tried to do. California has tried to put some restrictions on it, but for many, it does not quite go far enough to deal with some of the aspects of qualified immunity that we have been describing just before the break. I do want to just touch on one more case, just to clarify qualified immunity a little bit, given some of the disruptions that we had earlier. And this was a case out of Fresno in 2013, Professor Schwartz, where police officers were not held responsible for stealing $225,000 in cash and rare coins when they were executing a warrant. How did qualified immunity play into this when it sounds like everyone agreed, including the court, that they had, in fact, stolen this? Yes. So this is a case in which uh, officers were executing a search warrant. Um, it, was a, it was a case involving uh, gambling machines, which had recently been uh, ruled illegal. And this was a person who allegedly uh, had some of these machines. Um, but when the police officer came in to execute the warrant, they helped themselves to uh, almost a quarter of a million dollars in cash and rare coins, and then uh, only noted that uh, a small portion of, of the money, recognized a small portion of the money in their receipt um, to the evidence, uh, regarding the evidence. And, and so, um, <laughs> so they brought a lawsuit. Um, but even though it seems obvious, it should seem obvious to listeners that stealing money during the course of, a, of executing a search warrant is illegal um, and that prior cases have held it was unconstitutional for officers to steal, uh, those cases were factually distinct involving the theft of different types of property under different circumstances. And the Court of Appeals wrote that officers, quote, ought to have recognized that it was wrong to steal the coins and cash, but, quote, they did not have clear notice that it violated the Fourth Amendment because prior court decisions, quote, did not put the constitutional question beyond debate. And, you know, qualified immunity was created by the Supreme Court, supposedly at first to give officers who were acting in good faith a legal protection, um, and, and later, the, the Supreme Court changed that standard from good faith to clearly established law. The law had to be clearly established. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court's defined that in such narrow terms now that you have this situation where an officer clearly was acting in bad faith, stealing almost a quarter of a million dollars, and it should be clearly established to anyone that stealing money while executing a warrant is unlawful. And yet the way in which the court has created this protection, it, it, it means that people acting in bad faith, doing obviously unconstitutional things, are still protected from consequences of that misconduct. But can I just back up and clarify that for a second? The theory behind requiring a prior court case to have identical facts in order to find an officer accountable is so that you can only hold them accountable if they clearly, if it was clear that what they were doing was wrong, that it had been established before that what they were doing was wrong in a prior case. That that, is that's correct. the idea behind and it. Okay. That is the idea behind it. And, and I think that in current debates about qualified immunity, there is this notion that 
officers, you, you don't want to hold officers liable uh, for new developments in the law that they couldn't possibly have been aware of before. Um, but that's really not the way in which the doctrine functions now. Um, it, it, instead, it's, it's being used in these cases where there are misconduct, constitutional violations, uh, but the officer has the, the good fortune to have violated the Constitution in a way not exactly held unconstitutional in the past. Mm. So then tell me, when court cases are decided, is there like a broad announcement to law enforcement, hey, this has happened and you can't do this? Well, not quite. Uh, and, and I should say a, a lot of the book uh, is based on research that I have done analyzing, testing what the Supreme Court's justifications have been for qualified immunity and other protections. And these uh, justifications really bear little uh, out in, in reality. The court has talked about qualified immunity as this way of putting officers on notice that they shouldn't be held liable if they're not on notice uh, of, uh, of the unconstitutionality of their conduct. But what I found looking at hundreds of California law enforcement agencies' policies and trainings is that officers aren't actually trained about the facts and holdings of the hundreds or thousands of cases that could clearly establish the law for qualified immunity purposes. They're taught mm -hmm. broad principles like you can't use force against a non-resisting suspect. But they're not taught about individual cases. They're not taught about the facts of Jessup or the facts of Matos uh, and then expected to apply those uh, rulings in the course of their work. It would be completely unrealistic to imagine that officers could remember hundreds or thousands of cases and then sift through them as they're doing their job. Instead, they're taught these broad principles, and yet officers are protected under um, this fallacy of notice on the, uh, on the assumption that officers are actually reading and retaining information about all of these cases that would clearly establish the law. What were the justifications for qualified immunity and for the ways that uh, it was being strengthened in favor of the officers? What were the fears associated with it if it went away? Sure. Well, there are, uh, there's, a, there's a story that is told um, in the Supreme Court's qualified immunity decisions and also in, in public commentary about qualified immunity, that without qualified immunity, officers would be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes made during the course of their employment. And with that threat, uh, officers wouldn't vigorously do their job or, or no one would agree to be a police officer. And without a robust police force, our society would devolve into chaos. And, and that's really the story that you can see the Supreme Court and commentators telling again and again. The court talks about the importance of qualified immunity to society as a whole because of this story. But what I found in my own research is that the story falls apart if you look at it closely at all. Officers virtually never pay anything in settlements and judgments against them, and it has nothing to do with qualified immunity. In California uh, and in many other states across the country, officers are, as a matter of statute, protected by a indemnification protection, which means that when officers are sued, they're provided with lawyers 
and settlements and judgments against them are, are paid for by the city as a matter of state law that has nothing to do with qualified immunity. Well, let me go to Paul in San Francisco. Hi, Paul. You're on the line. Yes, maybe we should uh, recruit all police officers from uh, law school. Uh, it seems to me that if a police officer, and I know a number of them, uh, that if they feel that they are going to be liable, personally liable, including their family put through stress, that they will be hesitant sometimes to get involved in certain policing. And I think eliminating qualified immunity would be a detriment to uh, positive uh, uh, police work. And also, doesn't qualified immunity protect officers who acted in good faith also? Paul, thanks. Let me get Joanna's thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, terrific question. So so this is precisely what my research has been aiming to, to test. And qualified immunity is not what protects officers, homes, uh, and bank accounts. It is California state law that requires that when officers are sued, that their governments uh, pay uh, for an attorney and pay settlements and judgments entered against them. It it is not a protection. Uh, Qualified immunity is not the protection for officers, bank accounts, and homes. It is this state indemnification rule. And regarding officers' good faith mistakes, qualified immunity is not protecting against officers making good faith mistakes either. It's actually the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And as I talk about in the book, the way in which the court has interpreted the Fourth Amendment means that officers can make good faith, reasonable mistakes, when they do, they haven't violated the Constitution, which is the reason that officers can uh, stop, search, arrest, uh, use force against, even kill someone who has done nothing wrong if they've made a reasonable mistake. The Supreme Court cases say they haven't violated the Constitution. So qualified immunity, in my view, is being used in public debate, um, as, as, a, as a scare tactic, really, the argument being that without qualified immunity, officers are going to be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes, when indemnification statutes and the Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment cases already protect against the things that uh, defenders of qualified immunity say it's necessary for. Before you went in to test some of these justifications around qualified immunity or these ideas about the impact of qualified immunity, did you entertain at least the possibility that um, that you would find something that would justify it? <laughs> Joanna Schwartz, I know you have experience. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, I, I came into uh, this line of work really wanting to know how civil rights litigation functioned on the ground. I did not have, I did not, I had a, I had hints from my own practice as a civil rights litigator um, as far as <coughs> the indemnification uh, work was concerned. I'd had my own experiences as a lawyer 
seeing, uh, seeing officers not personally pay settlements and judgments in these cases. But I didn't know what the outcome was going to be of the research. No one had done it before. So when I was asking hundreds of law enforcement agencies across the country who paid in these cases, I did not know what answer I would find. But what I ultimately found, finally getting information back from 81 jurisdictions across the country over a six-year period, was that 99.98% of the dollars in these cases were paid by local governments and insurers, not by officers. I so in other words, no by taxpayers. <laughs> By us, by taxpayers or their insurers. Yeah, or their insurers. Yeah. Let me go to call. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, finish your thought. I, I, I I had no expectation that I was. I was shocked by those results (laughs) as much as as readers um, and listeners maybe. Yeah. Well, let me go to Tricia next. Hi, Tricia. You're on. Hey, thanks so much. Um, Just want to clarify as far as qualified immunity when it applies. is when the fact patterns match exactly, right? Or it doesn't apply. It's one of those inverts. But anyway, um, (laughs) the fact patterns have to be exact in order for the officer to be held accountable, correct? That is correct. Um, And, you know, certainly different courts uh, sometimes, uh, you know, view what exactness means in in slightly different ways, but, but that is correct. The officer have qualified immunity unless a plaintiff can come up with a prior court decision uh, with virtually identical facts. Which also seems really hard for the attorneys who take these cases, because I imagine they're hard to win, so not a lot of people take them, and that they're probably attorneys who don't have the kinds of incredible resources that you need to be able to find a case with the exact same fact pattern. That's absolutely true, yes. You know, as I point out in the book, there has to have been a prior incident that was almost identical. The person in that case had to have then found a lawyer to bring their case, which is difficult in many parts of the country to actually find a, a lawyer willing to represent people in civil rights cases. Then there has to have been a court decision in the case, as opposed to, for example, it settling quickly, uh, a court decision holding that that conduct was unconstitutional. And, and the Supreme Court made it even more difficult because the court has said that, that lower courts can grant qualified immunity without ruling on whether the Constitution was violated. So oh. the Supreme Court is telling plaintiffs, you have to find a prior court case with virtually identical facts held unconstitutional, and then telling lower courts, you don't actually have to issue those rulings. Hmm. Well, and so I think I know the answer now to this question from Stephen, who writes, what if an officer is acquitted because of qualified immunity in a particular case? Does that establish the fact that the behavior is illegal from that point on? Mm -hmm. Or does that have to be a conviction before some particular behavior is deemed illegal in the future? Great question, Stephen. Well, and and one thing to mention from that question um, and to just clarify based on it is right now we are talking about civil lawsuits. Lawsuits right. seeking money from the officer, or as I as I show, actually seeking money from the from the local government. Um, when you're talking about criminal uh, charges and criminal convictions, that involves the the criminal side of the of the process, and qualified immunity is not a protection there. There are there are other reasons 
um, that criminal convictions are very difficult to get. Uh, but the criminal side, there's often been talk about um, qualified immunity in the criminal context, but, but it's actually, they're, they're two separate systems. It does not exist in the criminal context, you're saying? Correct. It does not exist in the criminal context. And that is such an important point. Criminal charges against police officers are extremely hard. You're showing how civil charges or civil cases against officers are extremely hard to win. But you also hold that civil cases are probably the best avenue of some kind Mm -hmm. of recourse or some kind of restitution. Why? Yeah. Well, as a practical matter, criminal prosecutions are exceedingly rare. And and even when officers kill, uh, they're criminally prosecuted something like 2% of the time and convicted maybe a third of those times. And and criminal procedures against someone, an officer who has used non-fatal force or violated the Constitution in other ways are, are even rarer. But no matter what you think about criminal prosecution as a possible avenue, one, uh, there are a lot of benefits of bringing civil suits. For example, a person whose rights have been violated can bring that case themselves. They don't have to wait for a prosecutor to act. And once they bring that case, they can uncover evidence and information about what actually happened, uh, information that family members or the person whose rights themselves have been violated often are desperately eager to know, but that a prosecutor wouldn't be under no obligation to make public. And, and then if there is a successful case, a person can recover money to compensate them for their violations and possibly forward-looking reforms that can change the way in which the law enforcement agency operates, which, which is often what people whose rights have been violated want most, to, to know that something similar is not going to happen to themselves or a loved one again. But I guess the hardship is is that even hearing you say that, your whole book is about how hard it is to even do it. <laughs> Correct. It is very hard to do it. There is justice eked out of the system, but far more often at a far greater expense than it should be. Well, let's talk about ways we might change that. After the break, we're talking with Joanna Schwartz, professor of law at UCLA. Her new book is Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about qualified immunity in combination with other rules, issues, and realities that make the police, in the words of my guest, UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz, untouchable in California and nationwide. Her new book is Shielded. What questions do you have, listeners, about qualified immunity? Do you work in government or law enforcement? What are your thoughts on the importance of or the needs to change qualified immunity if you have them? Perhaps you try to sue a police officer or government official for misconduct and want to share what happened. Let me go to caller Tyler in Davis next. Hi, Tyler, you're on. Hi. Um, I think the guest might have sort of addressed my question. My question was going to be, I guess, what the proposed practical alternative is to qualified immunity. It sounds like her thought on that is the indemnification statutes. Um, You know, I, I consider myself pretty liberal and progressive, but I also have family member and friends that are police, and I understand that they need to be able to do their job. So I guess the question yeah. is, one, is is our indemnification statutes your proposed alternative? And then, two, to the extent they are, do those apply universally in every city and municipality across the country in California? And then are there any other effects that could happen from requiring um, the indemnification statutes to apply, like increased premiums or payments coming out of the municipality, et cetera. Mm. And Tyler. I'll take my question my answer off there. Yeah, Tyler, appreciate that. Joanna, your thoughts? And maybe you want to share what Colorado is doing afterward. <laughs> yes, well, so um, it, there was a lot of questions in there. I hope I, I, hope I get to them all, but please, uh, please let me know if I've, I've missed any. California's law um, says that officers who are um, acting in the course and scope of their employment, meaning doing their jobs, are, as a matter of state statute, um, going to be provided with a lawyer and and settlements and judgments will be paid um, against them. Now, it will be paid, uh, excuse me, by the the local government. This is already currently in place. Um, And... uh, there are um, uh, so, so so in terms of sort of impact on on um, insurers uh, or the or the like, this is this is currently the way in which things operate. I actually, uh, in, in terms of questions about how eliminating qualified immunity might increase those costs, when I looked at twelve hundred uh, police misconduct cases around the country, I actually found that fewer than four percent were dismissed on qualified immunity grounds um, for a variety of different reasons. But, but part of what I show is that when there is a weak or insubstantial case, it tends to be dismissed on other grounds. And, and so that qualified immunity is really doing its work against cases that could get past all of the other barriers, cases where people had shown constitutional violations. But in terms of concerns about what would happen if qualified immunity were eliminated, part of what that research shows is there likely is not going to be some um, massive influx of cases or of judgments. It's, it's really um, means that justice would be uh, served for people whose constitutional rights have been violated, but right now are being kicked out of court um, because they can't find that prior exact case. Um, and as Mina said, there is interesting uh, legislation that is percolating around the country that, that tries to address these issues in different ways. In Colorado, 
uh, a state statute was passed that created a state law right to sue um, and provides that qualified immunity is not a defense to that state claim. It does provide um, a potential sanction, financial sanction for officers. It requires that, that the local governments do indemnify their officers unless they've been uh, convicted of a crime connected to the case. It does leave open this possibility that if a local government finds that their officer has acted in bad faith, then that officer can be required to contribute up to $25,000 or up to 5% of a settlement or judgment, whichever is less. If the officer cannot afford to make that payment, then the entire payment comes from the local government itself. But it is a alternative way that Colorado is experimenting with to, again, ensure that local governments are paying the vast majority uh, of the settlements and judgments in these cases, but in the instances in which officers are found to have acted in bad faith, there can be a financial sanction paid directly by that officer. And why do you like this? What do you think it does if the officer also has to contribute if it's a bad faith case? I was, I was going to say, to, to, make, to make clear, I, it is not the case that officers will be required to contribute in all cases. In fact, this law has been in place since June of 2020, and I'm not aware of any case in which an officer has been required to contribute at this point. So uh, this is not a um, – there is, there is no um, massive influx of officers having to contribute under this statute. But what I like in theory is that this kind of model balances both an interest in compensating people whose rights have been violated and providing some measure of deterrence to an officer who has acted in bad faith. Because some people say we shouldn't ever indemnify officers. Officers should have to pay everything in settlements and judgments against them. I don't support that idea. Um, in, in, In many cases, that would end up meaning that a person whose rights have been violated received Nothing, because officers don't have the resources to make payments in these cases, particularly large cases. Uh, So this is a a scenario where a person whose rights have been violated can be compensated, but that there has to be, in my view, some form of deterrence or sanction for the officer if they have acted in bad faith, and, and this provides that possible sanction as well. Let me go to caller Jonathan in San Francisco next. Hi, Jonathan. You're on. Hey, what's going on? Um, I don't know if you remember me, but I actually called in a number of years ago, and I got a chance to speak to the uh, president of the uh, police union, and I brought up the idea of police being able to um, identify some of the root causes that make their jobs uh, dangerous. And um, when I questioned the president, he said, that's not our job. That's the job of the politician. Contact your local politician. We don't get involved in social or in societal issues. And that made me realize there, you can't change police culture. They're going to do what they're going to do. And they understand that they're pretty much, they have the powers of pretty much a God on earth. And you, in order to change that, well, you can't change that. So the only two ways to address that is to um, figure out some things that shouldn't be so heavily uh, punished by police, such as like minor uh, speeding tickets or 
figure out how to serve, you know, the most marginalized community because they're testing mm-hmm. out how far they can get away with with marginalized communities every single day. Mm-hmm. And until you trust that, it, it's not going to change. You have you have to take away their power to be abusive with what they do. And until you do that, you're just going to be throwing a tennis ball at a brick wall, hoping that it's going to break. Jonathan, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And there's a couple of things that Jonathan has said that I'd love to unpack with you Um Professor Schwartz, one is just on the question of police culture. You have written about how Mm -hmm. Justice Sonia Sotomayor has written about the court's qualified immunity decisions, essentially sending the message to police across the country to, quote, shoot first and think later. So first, do you think she's right that that these kinds of protections has had this type of impact on modern police culture? I do think that I I do agree with Justice Sotomayor that that these qualified immunity decisions uh, saying, for example, that, that, uh, you know, that an officer is not responsible when they steal a quarter of a million dollars during the course of a search or uh, cases saying that officers can assault people uh, like Jay Zalmatos, but in fact, there are, there are many, many, many more circumstances um, and escape responsibility because uh, there's not a prior court case. I do think that those cases send a message. There's another whole area of the law that we haven't even gotten into yet um, that focuses on local government responsibility. And, it's, and it is uh, as difficult, if not more difficult, <clears throat> to hold local governments responsible for the misconduct of their officers. I talk in the book about Vallejo, California, which is one of the most dysfunctional police departments in the country, uh, with officers, one officer killed three people in the course of a single year, um, and uh, and the city of Vallejo has largely escaped legal responsibility because the court, the way in which the Supreme Court has defined local government responsibility, makes it so difficult. And I think that goes also to the caller's point. The, the I, I don't think that police misconduct is about bad apples. I think it's about rotten trees. I think that there are systemic failures that often are the root cause of this misconduct and that the Supreme Court has really insulated local governments from responsibility for their officers' misconduct. Uh, but I also, I also agree with the, with, the, with the listener that my book is very focused on back-end accountability, what the systems are in place once officers have violated the Constitution. But I also think a full understanding and, and thinking about the future of policing has to take into account some of the questions about the, the front end and what uh, you know, interactions um, we allow and authorize. And there's been a lot of thinking in Philadelphia recently uh, limited police power to to do low level traffic stops. It's something that um, the Memphis Police Department is considering as well. Uh, there are efforts across the country to have unarmed people respond to people in mental health crises, and I think these are kinds of common sense solutions that that hopefully people who uh, may disagree about what the ultimate uh, goal is for public safety in our country can agree these are these are important incremental first steps. Yes. And that was actually the other point that I was going to ask you about. And just in terms of what police officers are tasked with doing and what of those types of things lead to the terrible 
and horrific cases that we end up seeing. Um, This listener writes, which Supreme Court changed qualified immunity to what it is in reality, absolute immunity, and gave citizens civil (laughs) rights second class status? Um, Let me just remind listeners first that you are listening to Forum, and we are talking with Professor Joanna Schwartz of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. I mean a Kim. So, yeah, do you want to give us a little bit of a history of how this played out in the Supreme Court? Sure. Well, so... It's, it's, it's a long path. Um, the, the Supreme Court first created qualified immunity in 1967 as a good faith immunity. So that was during the Warren Court time. Um, in 1982, in Harlow versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court changed the standard from the subjective standard to an objective standard. And then the, the shift has been... Uh, incremental over time, although I would say that although the Roberts Court, uh, John Roberts Court, has not announced um, significant new um, rules related to qualified immunity, what the court has done, this most recent Roberts Court, is issue a number of decisions, really an outsized portion of its docket, uh, has been spent on qualified immunity reversals, where I think it is sending that message that Justice Sotomayor criticized again and again, chiding lower courts for denying qualified immunity, talking about the importance of qualified immunity to society as a whole. And to my view, the John Roberts court has been um, one of the most influential in creating the standard that we have today. Hmm. Let me go to John in Berkeley. Hi, John, you're on. Uh, thank you. Thanks for mentioning the Hawaii case, because I think uh, the police departments in Hawaii have some of the most egregious misconduct cases. I wanted to ask you about the role of the police unions. Um, in mm-hmm. Hawaii, if a police officer is punished, they have a right through collective bargaining to arbitrate in secret. And 80 percent mm-hmm. of the time, the arbitrators diminish or reverse the penalty of the officers, and there's no recourse from the city or the police department. Is that a common thing around this country? It is a common thing. And and there's actually a a professor named Stephen Russian who has done, R-U-S-H-I-N, who has done a lot of terrific research going through police union contracts and through um, those arbitration kinds of protections. And they are common across the country. Uh, Police unions have played a really significant role in creating limitations on transparency uh, for for documents, limiting uh, the power of internal affairs to investigate, um, and limiting the power of local governments to discipline and fire officers. And then uh, once there has been a decision to discipline or fire, these arbitration agreements that you've mentioned come into play and often limit the ability of departments to discipline and fire their officers. It's not, a, it's not a focus of shielded because I focus in the book on the civil, civil litigation part of the process. The part of the reason that I'm focused on civil litigation uh, and describe it as one of the only means of seeking justice when someone's rights have been violated is precisely because Police unions have been so powerful and successful in limiting the ability of police departments to take action against their own officers through their internal processes. 
Philip in Richmond writes, isn't the current qualified immunity legislation just an extension of the original slave patrols? Of course, the slave patrols are are, uh, an extension of modern policing, or modern policing is an extension Mm -hmm. of the slave patrols. Mm -hmm. Um, But Philip is Mm -hmm. also asking about qualified immunity itself as that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's rhetorical. Mm -hmm. You're welcome to to respond to that. (laughs) But I I do think it is really important for us to mention who is most likely to be a victim of police mm-hmm. violence and unchecked police powers. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and it, is, it is important, and I, and I focus in the book not just on the current day, but on the history that we have of policing in our country. It is true, slave patrols uh, were the sort of modern, or the, the, the inception of policing in the South. In the Southwest, the Texas Rangers killed Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, and indigenous people uh, at the rate akin to um, the Ku Klux Klan operating in the South. And so there is a long history of racial violence and subordination uh, with law enforcement officers and agencies. And part of what I trace in the book is that there's been these waves over time that officers uh, or that local governments and the, the, the have, have not stepped in to protect people's rights. The Supreme Court and Congress uh, first in the years after the Civil War, again in the 1960s, created these protections, bolstered these protections for people to sue when their rights have been violated. And then promptly each time there have been this cutting away of these protections yeah. of the right to sue through qualified immunity and, and, other, and other legal rules. Yeah, so they keep undercutting those um, developments. Really quickly, we just have 30 seconds. Where are we now? <laughs> uh, are well, we in that we stage where there in... is a cutting away or a real effort to try to undo qualified immunity? I think in the in the in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, there was a shared commitment to move things forward, a third reconstruction. Unfortunately, I I see us uh, ebbing away, and I've partially written this book to encourage us not to wait for another viral video to take up these issues and really make the third reconstruction a reality. Hmm. The book is Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Joanna Schwartz, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Professor Joanna Schwartz, professor of law at UCLA. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Thank you, as always, listeners, for keeping it real. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.